0: Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland.
1: You know, every now and again, if you're really blessed of God, you have the opportunity to meet people in leadership that just seem like they're friends almost the minute you meet them and yet who are in positions of great responsibility. Hello, this is Mark Rutland. Welcome to The Leader's Notebook. I'm so delighted to present to you an interview today with Dr. Tim Hill. He is the general overseer of the Church of God. That's the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, a Pentecostal Church of God, uh, not the Church of God in Anderson, Indiana. And he is the general overseer over 180, this church is in, this denomination's in 180 countries, uh, 7 million members, and he is the presiding bishop for that whole denomination, and just one of the nicest, most down-to-earth guys you ever want to meet. Dr. Hill, welcome to The Leader's Notebook.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. What a joy to be with everybody today especially to be with you on this call. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Well, I'm delighted to introduce you to my listeners. Uh, First of all, because you and I are fellow Texans, and I I always have a special place in my heart for anybody from Texas. (laughs) Yes, sir. I, I think your wife, Paula, is also from Texas, is she?
0: She is, yeah. She was raised around South Lake, which is the location of the DFW airport right now.
1: Yes, uh, one of our daughters, Rosemary, graduated from uh, high school there. Okay. And uh, I see that at one point, did you pastor in Weatherford, or you grew up? Part of you growing up there.
0: You know, I grew up near there. We lived in Weatherford when we were young evangelists, uh, newlyweds. That was where we first lived. Uh, There there is the Church of God State headquarters there, and they have a campground and. Several little houses there for uh, itinerant evangelists, and uh-huh. that's what we did back in those days.
1: Well, you you may know then a little area that's out from Weatherford. I preached there. One of my best friend's pastors in Peaster, Texas.
0: Heard of it. Yeah, absolutely. My dad was well acquainted with Peaster.
1: And I used to, and still do, go there and preach in Peaster. You know, a lot of people, uh, Dr. Hill, do not know that the real town for the Lonesome Dove series, the real town of Lonesome Dove is actually Weatherford, Texas.
0: Well, I've got to make a confession. I didn't even know that. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to read up on that. I didn't. Now, my wife would have known that because she watched that series and loved it, but I didn't know
1: that. Well, it's a great series. You know, the the uh, the hero of the piece has to bring his friend back and bury him in a, a Lonesome Dove, and that's uh, loving and good night. And uh, Oliver Loving is actually buried in the in the uh, Weatherford Cemetery, and I have. Oh a,
0: my goodness! I have wow. a
1: photograph of Mark Rutland kneeling by the Loving
0: grave. In now the... <laughs> listen, the next time I go to Texas, I've got to go see that. I, I've never heard that, Mark. My goodness! Wow!
1: I'm glad I could educate a fellow
0: Texas. <laughs> you did. You did. I thought I'd seen it all in Texas, buddy. But I'm, I'm going to make a note of that one well
1: on your own life let's uh let's you you were a pk
0: i was i was
1: how do you feel like that you know you hear so many things pks why do they go so crazy all that kind of thing but <laughs> what, what do you what do you have to say about growing up as a preacher's kid
0: you know what i wouldn't have had it any other way i i was the baby of my family i had four other siblings and i was born in levelland texas now levelland is about I don't know, 25 or 30 miles on west of Lubbock, west Texas. And I was brought back to a little Church of God parsonage from the clinic where I was born. And that's all I knew until I graduated high school and went to college. And uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. My dad modeled before me the Christ life. You know, dad wasn't perfect. None of us are. But he modeled before me the prayer life, the Christ life. I saw him in the good times, the bad times, and somewhere along the way, the Spirit touched my life, and I said, that's that's what I want to do. I was saved under my dad's ministry, and uh, he's gone to heaven now. My mother is 93. She lives with me, and we have so many wonderful memories of, of dad's ministry years, and uh, I just... I think I am what I am today, and I know this isn't everybody's story. We've all got a story, but I am partly, at least, what I am today because of the education that I got growing up in a a church parsonage. I saw a lot of different angles, and uh, you know, I just, I just appreciate it. I really do.
1: You know, I'm glad to hear you say that. I think the whole thing about PKs going haywire is is an overblown myth. Some of the finest, most effective ministers of the gospel, and leaders in other fields that I know uh, grew up in, in parsonages of, of various denominations. And, and I kind of take umbrage at the myth that PKs... I, I, sometimes I say the PKs would be better kids if they didn't have to hang around with the elders' kids. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I had plenty of opportunities to get in trouble, and uh, I certainly did on occasion. But, you know, it was the love of my parents and and, and and the other part, the love of that church, the love of that congregation uh, that just kept reaching out to me and other teenagers like me at that time that, uh, you know, we, we just couldn't stray too far without feeling that love tug, that love pull bringing us back. And, uh, you know, it, it was just it was just a good life for me.
1: I I want to come to your subsequent education uh, and school and doctoring and all the rest of that, but let's. I want to talk a little bit about your music career. It's a fascinating thing to me. Uh, I'm in the vast host of the tone deaf, so <laughs> it's it's exciting to meet somebody who in, in uh, the senior executive position of an entire denomination whose actual start of his ministry was music. That's right. I have in my notes, you correct, it says that you have written 200 gospel songs, and that you have, one was the song of the year.
0: That's right. That's right. I was blessed and favored with that. You know, I was raised on uh, good old-fashioned church hymns, southern gospel music. Uh, A lot of times I, I get up and before I sing, I'll say, you know what? God likes all kinds of music if it lifts up the name of Jesus. And then I go down the categories. He likes contemporary. He likes Christian rap, whatever that is. But I always end by saying, but I believe he taps his feet to good old Southern gospel. (laughs) And then, you know, everybody will chuckle about like about like you did Uh, just there. And that breaks the ice. But I was I was raised on the Happy Goodman family, the Rambo. Some of your older listeners might remember those names. And it got in my spirit, and I wrote my first song. Of course, we, we won't uh, talk about those very much, but I wrote my first song at about 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad had bought me an old upright piano, brought it into the house. Later, he bought me a little nicer piano when I learned to play a little bit. But I was writing songs as young as 10, and by the time I was uh, 20... Uh, my songs are being published and recorded, and uh, just just had a good time with that. Two hundred is not uh, that many and compared to other writers. I mean, a Dottie Rambo wrote about twenty five hundred to three thousand. Uh, you know, writers like that just put them out almost every day. But uh, I've enjoyed uh, what little success I've had in that.
1: Well, two hundred seems like a huge number to me since I've never written one, <laughs> but. <laughs> Uh, it says here that um, some of the top gospel artists in the nation have recorded some of your music. Uh, that must that must be very rewarding to you to see that.
0: It's very it's very gratifying. And again, you know, I'm 62 now, so my my songwriting career is a little dated. Uh, we need to update those bios, but I'm going back in the days of uh, you know when Janet Pascal was. Uh, traveling everywhere, groups like uh, the Spear Family. Some of your listeners will remember those names. Uh, you know, groups, groups like that. Blackwood Brothers, uh, mm. Jimmy Blackwood, and so that 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 was kind of my genre. I've had some contemporary cuts, not many, but uh, one of the one of the greatest thrills I ever had. Somebody sent me a cassette tape one day, and I'm, I'm dating myself again. But it was a it was a praise and worship uh, album that was recorded in, uh, I believe it was in Bulgaria. And uh, all of a sudden the song comes on and I recognize the tune, but I can't make out the words because obviously I don't speak that language, but it was my song, a song I wrote wow. called He's on the Throne. And it had swept to Bulgaria. It became a top song in Bulgaria. And so I started looking it up on the internet and man, a lot of people had recorded it. And just to know that a song like that, you know, crossed the water and uh, touched a lot of lives, that it's really one of the contemporary songs over there. Isn't so that's that's some of the rewards of my songwriting.
1: Oh, that's great. Then uh, after you finished college at uh, Lee University and then uh, Dr. of Divinity at the Church of God Theological Seminary there in Cleveland also, was there some point where... I, I don't know how to ask this question exactly. Did it ever occur to you or did it come in your heart or did did the general overseer of the Church of God, did that just fall on you? Was there some point where you said, I think God's going to do that in my life? Was that a vision?
0: No, no, not really. I I can't say that it was, you know, it, it was nothing I aspired to. First of all, it was nothing in my early years that I thought. Would come or, or desired to come. There was a point, you know. It's 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 got its own style of uh, evolving, and some would even call it politics. I guess there there was a point when you start getting elected to boards and committees, and then I was elected to the executive committee. And you're able to just sort of read uh, the tea leaves, as they say. And you're sitting on a plane one day and you say, you know what, that is a possibility. That could happen when you start looking at the landscape. But, you know, in my early life, uh, there was really no point at all that I said, that's what I want to do. I'm going to be honest with you, Mark, the greatest joy I've ever had even to this day. And I love what I do. And I'm thankful that the greatest joy I ever had was outside of being a, a husband, a, a dad, a father, the greatest joy was pastoring a the church. Mm. Uh, there's not a day that goes by in my life that I don't think about the church I used to pastor. Matter of fact, I wrote an article one time called, What Was I Thinking? <laughs> and it, it was about leaving that church to get into denominational work in what in a lot of people's estimation, is becoming a, becoming largely a non-denominational world. Uh, but I left the church running about 800 in Danville, Virginia, 1996. Sitting on the pew was a very happy wife involved in community ministry, uh, women's aglow, those kinds of things. Sitting on the pew were three young girls that I'd baptized, not only as their dad, but as their pastor. And I got a call asking me to be in denominational work at the state level. And so I packed up my family after eight very good years in Danville and went from one Sunday running 800 people The next Sunday, I preached in a church that had 35. They hadn't had a pastor in four months, and they weren't too thrilled to see me. Uh, You know, so I'm just thinking, what was I thinking? What was
1: I thinking? (laughs)
0: You got it. I've never
1: written that book, but I (laughs) could (laughs) have.
0: At the end of the day, it goes back to the call of God. I didn't open that door. God did because he saw a path that he wanted me on to help finish the Great Commission. And to help inspire others to try to get involved in doing the same. So I have no regrets. Uh, certainly, I have great memories of pastoring. I loved it. And uh, if I had age on my side, I'd do it again. But uh, yeah, back to your question, I really never had that moment of saying, I want to be or I'm going to be General Overseer. There was a point when I saw the possibility could come, and it did come in 2016.
1: I'm interested to hear you talk about that because... It seems to me there are two different ways that God... Um, leads us. One is a, a vision out there, a thing that we strive for, go for, or pursue. And the other is an unfolding vision that we just sort of yeah. go through the doors that he opens and we arrive at some particular destination that maybe he had in mind the whole time, yeah. but we never saw it. And that's certainly been my life. And it sounds like it's been your whole philosophy of obedience.
0: Definitely. You know, the only prayer really that I can connect to this is a prayer that I've always prayed, started as a young man, is that God would uh, open doors and put me in places where I could reach the most people in the shortest amount of time. And, you know, I've circled like a plane, I've circled the field in a lot of different areas music, television, all those kinds of things, but never got totally immersed in any of those. God seemed to put me uh, in the leadership genre of ministry. Mm-hmm. And so that's just, that's, that's the way I received that. He's answered that prayer. I've stood on a lot of great stages and platforms. And I think because of the opportunities I've had in my context of ministry, I've not reached, you know, the multiple millions like others have. But in my context of ministry, God's answered that prayer to let me reach the most amount of people in the shortest amount of time. The the biggest challenge that I pray against is that God uh, keeps me from leaning my ladder against the wrong wall. Mm. You know, when this thing is done and I've climbed whatever ladders I climb, I don't want to get to the top of it and find out that I've leaned it against the wrong wall. I want to wow. be in God's perfect will at God's perfect time. And sitting here today, Mark, talking to you, I feel, I don't say this to be haughty. I don't say this to be arrogant, but I feel like God's answered that prayer so far every every ladder uh, that that he's allowed me to step on I have had the the gratification the joy of knowing it's been leaned against the right wall for my life
1: what what a great prayer Lord, let me not lean my ladder against the wrong wall that's that's wonderful let me ask you a since you bring up the issue of leadership let me ask you a a leadership question I like to ask people I interview can you identify some crisis some moment some challenge in leadership that that you thought to yourself this is the this is the toughest thing I've ever gone through or led through is there anything like that
0: yeah the last the last two years Mm. (laughs) the Mm. last two years mark uh and I write about that a lot in my new book uh furnace grace but uh, I I dedicated uh, the whole closing portion of my book to how the Lord's helped me navigate, uh, leading in a, in a pandemic crisis. And, uh, I look back on it, you know, from March, 2020, when this thing hit so hard, uh, the Lord has helped me every step of the way I knew in, in the beginning of this. And I made this confession to several people. I could not self navigate through this crisis. I couldn't, I couldn't rely on anything that I had or anything within me. I had to have supernatural help and the Lord has been so faithful for two years. But yeah, I mean, two years really nonstop, uh, through 2020, especially 2021 wasn't much better. I see a lot of great fruit and a lot of great light at the end of the tunnel here in early 2022. But, uh, you know, these last two years for our pastors, ministers everywhere, has just been a crisis, crisis time. And I could go into a lot of things about how the Lord has helped us in the miracles that I've seen. But, but absolutely, these these two years of leading in a pandemic has tried every fiber, every nerve, everything in my being. I've had to I've had to pull and call upon every resource that I had inwardly from the Spirit from my knowledge of God's word, from my knowledge about leadership to bring us uh, to where we are today. And here's the here's the success. Here's the, the testimony. We've seen more souls saved during these years of pandemic than we saw before. I had my staff compare 2019 to 2020 because 2019 was an incredible year for us. We had revival around this world at the Church of God. And then 2020 hit and several churches shut down. You know the story. Yes, I I said to my staff, go and pull the numbers and just tell me what happened spiritually around the world. And they came back and said, Bishop, you might want to know this. We saw 35,000 more people come to Christ in 2020 than we saw in 2019. Wow. Wow. And it's the same for 2021. It just grows every year. Church planning has increased. One of the new things that's happening is online churches. You know, and here's what I say, Mark, when I get up to begin a message anymore, I say, you know what? The devil thought he would shut us up and shut us down. He was dead wrong because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has found more ways to preach more gospel to more people than at any other time in our history. And so to God be the glory. And, uh, you know, leaders everywhere have been stretched. We've been challenged, but uh, God's been so faithful. It's been amazing.
1: So wonderful to hear you say that. There's been so many satanic moments in church history. Take the 2000 years. Caesar couldn't stop the church. Bubonic plague couldn't stop the church. The corruption of the church in the Middle Ages couldn't stop the Protestant Reformation. The the corruption of the Protestant church couldn't stop the spirit-filled revival. The church cannot be stopped. and, And this pandemic did not stop the church. Indeed, according to your report, we surged.
0: Absolutely. You know, we're preaching now. I mean, it's a, it's the old uh, message of upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And uh, that's exactly what we've seen. Now, there's some things I had to put in place and I had to do it quick, but but God has used those things to, to bring us to a place of solidarity now. Out of it,
1: uh, out of the fire of the pandemic, a global pandemic, and when one is the head of a global denomination 180 countries there was not a single country under your under your leadership that wasn't touched by this pandemic and out of that came this wonderful book that you wrote called furnace grace and i was so humbled and and honored to be asked to write the foreword to it and this book furnace grace tell us a little bit about what do you mean when, when you say in your subtitle, how to live when the heat is turned up?
0: Well, thank you, first of all, for writing that forward, Mark. And I'm counting on your forward to sell the book. <laughs> it's, a, it's a better forward than it is a book, I'm sure. <laughs> but here's the deal. I, you know, right in the beginning of this, I started preaching a message that really I, I started preaching a, very, a variation of this message in my early ministry. I used to preach a message when I was evangelizing as a 20-year-old preacher boy. I preached a message called Seven Times Hotter Than It Already Is Mm. about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel chapter three. Well, you know, that's been 40 something years ago. And all of a sudden, the Lord recirculates that thought in my spirit. And I redevelop it into this message that became a book called Furnace Grace. How do you live when the heat's turned up? We've changed the byline to the power to stand when the heat is on. But it's the same principle. You know, Nebuchadnezzar gave these three Hebrew children an ultimatum. You will either bow or you will burn. They looked at him very quickly and with confidence, and they said, we're not slow to give you an answer. We can tell you right here, right now, what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. We're not going to bow. God is able to deliver us from the fire. He will deliver us from your hand. But if not, be it known to you this day, we will not serve your gods or worship your image." Well, from that, I wrote the book Furnace Grace, and it's a book of well over 200 pages. Uh, since you wrote the foreword, we've actually done a revision of it, Mark, and added a lot more material to it. And I just walk through, how do you stand when the heat is on? What does a man or a woman do when pressure is on in your life? You know, it wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar said, leave the furnace at its present temperature. He said, turn it up seven times more. hmm how do you live when what was hot gets hotter? Wow! How do you make it when what was bad gets worse? So I talk about the three Hebrew children and then what they show us. I talk about David. Uh, you've talked a lot about David, written great books about David. Uh, he comes to Ziklag in 1 Samuel chapter 30. His town is burnt down. Yes. Well, it gets hotter. His house is burned down. It gets hotter. His treasure is stolen. It gets hotter. His family is stolen. It Mm. gets hotter. The people he served wanted to kill him and raise up new leadership because they didn't think he was an effective leader in a time of crisis. How do you live when the heat's turned up? Well, then I talk about Job. Job was the greatest man in all the East. And then he got uh, news that his uh, financial income stream was destroyed. Camels were stolen by civilian marauders. And it gets hotter. He gets sick from head to toe. And it gets hotter. His wife says, "Curse God and die." It gets hotter. Three friends come and sit for seven days, stare at him, and say, "What'd you do to make God so mad?" And then his wife said, "Curse God and die." But but Job, in the middle of all this, said. Darling, if we can curse God and die, we can bless God and live. Mm, and the wow. Bible said that his latter end was greater than his beginning, and in all of this Job sinned not, neither did he charge God foolishly. These are examples of how people live when the heat is turned up. And so I walk through this book and I talk about, you know, the furnace of distress, the furnace of delay, the furnace of discouragement. And on and on and on it goes. uh, And just try to give some principles that people can employ in their life to get them through the tough times. And here's what we're doing in the Church of God. We've made this available to every pastor. Uh, I had a wonderful, generous donor step up and said, look, I've heard the message. I've read the book. I want this in the hands of every Church of God pastor. And so next week, we mail this out to every pastor in the Church of God. And uh, it's, it's just amazing.
1: Isn't that wonderful? But Bishop, there may, be a, there may be a lot of people listening to my podcast that are not in the Church of God. How can they get the book?
0: Well, if they want to join Church of God, I'll send them free.
1: <laughs> Bishop, right here on my podcast, you're bribing people to join the Church of God.
0: <laughs> Prophealine. Prophealine. that's what it's called. It is purest form. No, hey, uh, TimHillMinistries.com. Uh, TimHillMinistries.com dot com and uh, they can order it there. It's it's right there.
1: TimHillMinistries.com Make sure you put that down. And I I want to urge you to get this book. I think it will bless you. It will strengthen you. Not just pastors, leaders, in every way. This just this is a great book about just walking. Keep walking. Keep serving. Keep living and loving God. In the when the heat goes up, Panenza, it's a a great book, and I recommend it. "Furnace Grace" by Dr. Tim Hill. Dr. Hill, as we as we get ready to close here, there is a uh, there is a question that I ask leaders that I I interview. We specialize here sort of on the, the leaders' notebook on the leadership aspect of of the Christian life. But there's one question I always ask leaders, and that that is this: If you could speak to leaders everywhere. Business leaders, political leaders, uh, church leaders, and you and somebody said you can only tell them one thing about leadership. You have you can say speak to every leader in the whole world, but you can only tell them one thing. Is there something that you would say? This is the thing I would tell every
0: leader. Yeah, you know I'm going to wrap up a whole lot of things in one word, and that's the word consistency uh, and then you can go from there. I mean, you can preach and teach all day long from that one word. I had a young man walk in my office one day when I was pastoring. He was a struggling young man in and out, up and down. He sat down one day, so frustrated. And he said to me, I finally determined what my problem is in my life. I said, what's that? He said, I have been real consistent at being inconsistent. Mm. And he nailed it because I knew him I knew his life I'd watched him as a pastor he was so inconsistent and I think for me uh, just consistency consistent in my walk my my faith, my uh, devotion, my family life uh, you know I heard Larry Stockstill just a few days ago in a conference I was in where he was speaking talk about talk about the reward of, of compound, uh, Interest in compound consistency, praying every day, uh, a, a good uh, Bible reading model that you employ every day that takes you through the Bible every year, uh, things you do financially every day, just the word consistency, and I think once we once we get it together, once once we determine you know what path we're going to be on in our life, once we get there. Let's be consistent parents, consistent husbands, spouses, consistent leaders, preachers. So there's a lot wrapped up in that word, Mark. But uh, at the end of my life, I want to finish well, and I want to be well when I finish. And uh, that's the deal with me. When this is all said and done, I want to finish well. I want to be well when I finish. And I'm talking spiritually, physically, and every other way.
1: Wonderful! I, I I think I hear the next book coming from Dr. Tim Hill, the Power of the Consistent Leader. I I can't wait to read that book.
0: <laughs> well, I hope you'll write the forward for that one, buddy. We'll get a series going. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Well, it's been so great to have you with us today, Dr. Hill. Thank you for joining me on the Leaders Notebook.
0: Thank you, Mark. Wonderful to
1: be with you. And thank you for joining us on the Leaders Notebook. I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Dr. Tim Hill. I pray that you will uh, take a look at his book, Furnace Grace, and that it'll be a great blessing to you. Now, remember, my friend, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing in your life, in your business, in in your family, in the church that you pastor, when the fire turns up, the fourth man in the fire is always Jesus. He's there with you. He'll never forsake you. Until we meet again. This has been The Leader's Notebook, and I'm Mark Rutland.
0: You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at DrMarkRutland or visit his website, DrMarkRutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.